My objectives for this session are to describe the aims of the module and the assessment expectations, um, outline the relationship between folklore and the sociological study of social problems. That seems a bit odd, right? Why, what, what's folklore got to do with social problems? Well, the perspective that we're going to take is uh, social problems constructionism. So we're going to talk about the stories that we tell about social issues, how we understand social problems in terms of storytelling, in terms of cultural values. And I think this is really important because it allows us to think critically when we're being asked to worry about something. And it gives us the tools to say, well, uh, who says I should worry? Um, what values do they draw on? What is it? What kind of fear are they trying to connect to? I think that can be very helpful um, to avoid panicking because policies made out of panic are usually not very good policies. Um, so we need to have clear heads. And as sociologists, we need to be able to criticize and, and be critical of and, and, and take a step back from policies and look at their, the unintended consequences that can come about when policies are made out of panic. We're going to go through today some examples of the role of myth in historical and contemporary societies. And my main idea, so I'm going to tell you lots of stories and you're going to wonder what I'm on about. Um, but my main idea, my purpose is to put across the idea that there's something about these stories that make us want to repeat them. And that's important for social problems. Because every day, if you read a newspaper, which I'm sure most of you don't, but if you go on social media, there's a cacophony of claims all the time. Worry about this, care about that, do something about my problem. And you're like, ah, I, I, I don't know. You, either you think the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket, or you think, I just don't care. Or you think, well, I'll just pick this one then. <laughs> this will be my pet issue. Um, and, you know, some, not every claim, not every claim that you're bombarded with succeeds. Some you hear once or twice and you never hear again. Why is that? Is it because it wasn't that severe? It wasn't a very big problem? Hardly, hardly. Um, so there's not, no necessary connection between the severity of a problem and the degree to which we worry about it and in fact, historically, we've worried about lots of problems um, for which there's very little evidence they even existed at all. And so we need some tools to make sense of why something um, gets repeated, why a story gets repeated becomes very powerful. And so for that, we need to understand cultural mean, meaning and salience. So I'll go through what that means. So let's say you had an argument amongst a bunch of Enlightenment philosophers They'd have come down, they would have said, yes, but freedom, human freedom and reason, this is the most important value, obviously. Okay, well, yes. Now you have an argument with somebody and the trump card will be something like, yes, but for your health. Because it's health, of course, it's about keeping people safe. It's about health and safety, isn't it? Yes, oh, of course, it's about health. And that becomes, that's become the default cultural value. It's just interesting that one has a lot of cultural purchase at one time and at another it doesn't. Um, and so we need to understand these sorts of things. So culture is not just song and dance. It's also the things that we take for granted as right and wrong and valuable and important. And so social problems will draw on those things. These things are cultural resources. So if I want to convince people of something, I'll have to say, yes, but it's for your health. 
or actually it's detrimental to health or something like that. So this is useful. It helps us to be critical and to unpack some of the ways that people invite us to think about things. Why social construction? Well, I already kind of gave you some ideas about why this is important, but it enables us to think critically about how issues are presented in the public sphere, how cultural values are suddenly drawn upon to convince us that something is a problem and that we should enact a particular course of act action in order to solve it. And it often, it's, it's not just that we they want people to get off and get out of the claims makers, we call them, so people who are invested in these issues and invested in getting your attention. It's not always that they want you to go out in the streets with like placards or something. Sometimes they just want you to be passive and not get mad. <laughs> and so it, issues are often constructed in ways that seem like no-brainers. Obviously, as a good person, anybody would care about this hurting babies. If you don't care about this issue, are you a baby killer? And you're like, oh, I'm not a baby. <laughs> then the, the issue goes through. The, the policy gets passed. The course of action that claims makers want gets passed. Um, and so often cultural issues will be presented in ways we call these valence issues. They have a positive valence. That is, no one could possibly disagree. There's usually something underneath that. Um, so it's not just that people are urging us to do something or to act. It's often to not act, to be passive, to allow something to happen. So we need to know and understand this in order to become active citizens, in order to become critical thinkers um, and critically engaged citizens of a complex world. I'm going to jump straight in to the sociology of folklore. I'm going to tell you two stories. And uh, I want you to think about how these stories make you feel, whether you would be compelled to repeat them, and if you were compelled to repeat them, whether or not you would remember them. So what makes these stories memorable or not? Uh, and in what circumstances would you find yourself repeating these stories? And what, if anything, they're very different stories, but what, if anything, do they have in common? So think about that. I'll bring these questions back up when I finish. Okay, so the first story I'm going to tell you is one of my favorite stories when I was a little girl, and it's called Nebuchadnezzar and the Great Flood. And this is an Ojibwe folktale that has been told probably for thousands of years, and it has lots of different variations. Sometimes it's Nanabush, sometimes it's Wainabuju. We call it a, uh, they call it in folklore a trickster figure. So here's the story. <laughs> okay, um, so a long, long, long time ago, uh, Gitchi Manitou, which is the creator, looked down on the world and he saw a lot of evil. The people weren't listening to him anymore. And he was really, really sad. And so Gitchi Manitou waved his hand and rain started to fall. And it fell and it fell and it fell and it fell and filled up the whole world with water till all the evil drowned and all the bad people drowned and drowned. And the only thing that was left were the birds in the sky and a few animals treading water and Nanabuju, who was floating on a log. And all the birds were flying around him. And every now and then they would land on the log and they would catch their breath and Nanabuja would let them. And every now and then the little animals treading water would get up on the log to catch their breath for a little while and to rest. And after this went on for a long, long period, eventually they started to discuss how they might bring back the earth, how they might find land. And they came up with this idea that maybe if they could dive, dive, dive down to the bottom, they could pull up a little piece of land that they could live on. And so um, a great bird that was in the sky said, 
Nanobushin, Nanobushin, I can do it. I am a great Huron, and I can dive very, very deep to catch my to catch my food. I surely can dive to the bottom of the ocean or the bottom of the sea, and I would bring up a piece of the earth. So the great bird dives down, 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 and everybody's waiting in anticipation. He's gone for a long time. And just as they're about to give up hope, they see little bubbles coming to the surface. And up comes the Huron, gasping for air. And he says, Nanabushu, I couldn't do it. I tried so hard, but it's too deep. There's no chance for me. And, he, and Nanabushu pulled them up onto the log and said, that's okay. And then after they sat silently and sad for a little while, a little beaver came and treaded along and pulled himself up on the log. And he said, my dad always do these little voices. Um, Nanabushu, I am the great beaver. I dive and spend all the time in the water. I surely can get to the bottom of the ocean and bring back a little piece of earth. And Nanabushu says, okay, go, go do it. And all the little animals cheer and the beaver dives down, 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 down. He's gone for a long time. And they are just about to give up hope. And some of the little animals even shed a tear. And then they see a few little bubbles coming up. And the beaver comes up gasping for air. And he pulls himself up onto the log and says, Nanabuja, Nanabuja, I tried so hard, but I couldn't. It's just too deep. And Nanabuja says, it's okay. It's all right. And they're all very sad and they're losing hope. And then they hear a tiny little voice from behind them. And it's the tiniest little muskrat. And the muskrat says, I am but a tiny little muskrat. <laughs> but I think that I can, I can get to the bottom. Give me a try. And all the animals laugh. You're a muskrat. The great Huron couldn't get to the bottom. The beaver couldn't get to the bottom. And you're going to get to the bottom? He says, just give me a chance. <laughs> and Nanabuju quells all the animals. And he says, no, let the little muskrat take a chance. So the little muskrat dives down, down, down. <laughs> I'm going to cry. This is so funny. <laughs> the little muskrat that my, I tell the story to my daughter and she sheds a tear as well. Um, it goes, she, uh, little muskrat dives, dives, dives down, it's gone for a long, long, long time. And the animals all realize and they all start to cry and they give up hope. And just as they're about to swim away, they see something coming up in the murky darkness of the water. And Nanabuju reaches down and scoops up the lifeless body of the little muskrat. And he lays him out on the log and everyone's crying and mourning. And then he notices the little muskrat's paw is clenched really tightly. And he pries open the paw and he sees a tiny, tiny little bit of earth. And they put the little bit of earth on the back of a turtle. And it began to grow and grow and grow and grow. And it created North America, and which is why we call it Turtle Island. If you've ever heard that before, we call North America Turtle Island because we put the Nanabuju put the bit of earth on the back of the turtle and it grew. And then they all went onto the onto Turtle Island um, and, and began to build the world anew. And Nanabuju still had the little muskrat and he blew into the muskrat's mouth and he breathed life back into the little muskrats. Don't worry, you survived. It was okay. <laughs> So that's the story of Nanabuju and the Great Flood, which is one of my favorite stories when I was a little girl. I still tell this story to my uh, my daughter. It was between that one or the rolling head, which I told you about last semester, if you remember. Yeah, I'm glad I told you Nanabuju because my, I got my dad to tell me the rolling head over Christmas. And I was like, 
yeah, that is inappropriate. But what's interesting is that his grandmother, my great-grandmother, had told him the story when he was a little boy, and she had actually censored it, which I find interesting, because this would have been in the 1950s. Um, and, and I was like, no, dad, that story's like brutal. And he was like, oh, well, <laughs> I was like, yeah, like he feeds the, anyway, it's horrible. <laughs> and he's like, well, that's not how I heard it. Anyway, so there's, I'll come to this. There are variations in these stories. Okay, so story two, I'm going to tell you. So keep that one in mind. Was it memorable? Would you be able to repeat the story? What about it made it memorable? Here's a second story, the mansion hitchhiker. Maybe you've heard this one before. Just outside Swansea, swear this is true. I heard it from a friend of a friend of mine. Uh, there's a dangerous intersection. And Dr. Reese, very well-known medical doctor, very respected in the area, was driving home from the hospital late one Saturday night. He slowed up for the intersection and was surprised to see a lovely young girl dressed in a sheer evening gown, beckoning him for a lift. He picked her up, but had her sit in the back seat because his front seat was covered in medical supplies. He asked her what she was doing out alone so late at night. It's a long story, said the girl. Her voice was shrill but sweet. Please, please take me home. I'll explain everything there. And she gave the man her address. The doctor drove rapidly to the address she had given him. And as he pulled up before the shuttered house, he said, here we are. Then he turned around. But the back seat was empty. She was gone. What the devil? The doctor muttered to himself. The girl couldn't possibly have fallen from the car. He rang insistently on the house bell, and at long last, a gray-haired, very tired-looking man answered. The doctor began in exasperation. A young girl gave me this address, and I drove her here, and yes, yes, I know, the man said wearily. This has happened several other Saturday evenings. That young girl, sir, was my daughter. She was killed in an automobile accident at that intersection where you saw her almost two years ago. You heard that story before? My husband tells a version of this um, it, that his grandmother told him um, that happened in Greece in the 1940s. Very interesting. Even in Greece, there's a version of this story. So how did these stories make you feel? So thinking about the first one, was it affective in some way? Was there some, did it elicit any feelings? I almost cried. It was supposed to be emotional. <laughs> no, the poor little fox cried. A little muskrat. In fact, I wonder if you in the original story, not original story, there's no original story. I wonder if every version of the story has Nana Bouja breathing life back into the muskrat because I just think it's too sad for the little muskrat to die. Anyways, uh, any, any, did it give you any feelings? Any the beginning, the people that were evil, retribution, Schadenfreude? How about the vanishing hitchhiker? Any feelings there? What if it was like, um, I lost my pigeon at that intersection? <laughs> I lost my great-grandmother at that intersection. What is it about a young, lovely girl? It's a, very, it's a very common motif. It's something that's repeated again and again. Someone at the cusp of life, young, full of youth, beautiful possibilities. So often the, the victims are innocent. Um, they're what we call um, liminal, so they're betwixt and between. They're often, it's often like the person who's just about to get married. The next day, or um, sometimes it might be a pregnant woman or um, uh, a husband rushing home to see his newborn baby. These kinds of stories are very affective. That is, they elicit strong emotions from us, the people on the cusp of life. And you see this now in social problems. Um, if you open up a newspaper, 
they'll often start with this same kind of framing. Jenny had everything going for her. She was young and beautiful. She just finished her degree. She even just met her boyfriend recently. Then Tommy attacked, right? It's the same kind of story. <laughs> it's a very, very common thing. It's so common, we call it a typifying story. Such a common motif, it has a name, a typifying story. And then the next line will typically be 56% of people. But, and the, the stat will usually, it, you're invited to say, oh, 56% of people experience something like Tommy and Jenny. But actually, it's usually an extreme story that they put in the typifying thing. And then the stat represents a, a spectrum of experience. But it's, it's a very common kind of motif. Someone betwixt and between young, everything going for them, just about to do something. So that young girl was my daughter. So that obviously, um, if you're explaining that she's a lovely young girl, she's probably 16, 17 years old, or else she'd be called a child. And there's a hint, sheer evening gown, a hint of sexuality about it. But somebody's daughters are not quite into the world of sex. So there's this liminality, this betwixt in between. That kind of thing tends to affect us. And there are versions of the story that are, as I said, even more affective. Sometimes it's a, a husband trying to get home to his baby. Sometimes it's a woman about to be married and she's even wearing her wedding dress. That second story wasn't true. But if I said, I swear it was true. Look, it's Dr. Reese, respected. Um, would you feel compelled to repeat that story? Well, we like to tell stories. Um, some people define human beings as storytelling creatures. We like to tell stories. I've got a bank of supernatural stories that I bust out every time I get have a couple of drinks. Uh, <laughs> and it's, you know, we like to do that. Um, so it's got a supernatural element, but it's just about believable. It could have happened. It's got all these lovely little details. A doctor, right? We have to trust a doctor's judgment. It's got a place that's recognizable. It's a specific place. You can see this on Twitter. I saw going around, um, oh, my two friends were at a uh, COVID testing center. They waited a really long, did you see this one? Uh, they waited a really long time outside in the cold. They eventually get, got bored and left. Um, and then a little while later, they got a text saying their COVID test was positive. Do you hear that one went all over the place and it had lots of little motifs that varied just a little bit, but they had the same kinds of things. It was like at a testing center in Swansea, a testing center in blah, blah, blah. A friend of a friend. It happened to a friend of a friend. Um, and it has a twist, a little punch at the end. Yes, I know. I was my daughter. A little while later, they got a text. It was their COVID test was positive. But they never took the test. So there's all of these kinds of things. They're common in all the stories that we tell. So when we feel compelled to repeat something, that's when your little spider senses should be tingling. Because that's when you should step back and say, well, what is it about the story that makes him want to believe it, want to repeat it? Then start looking for the variations and you'll find there's it probably, yes, it's probably a modern urban legend. Okay. So what do these stories have in common? Each has something that makes it memorable and repeatable. So the uh, story of Nana Buju, um has a lot of memorable aspects to it. It has things like human hubris, um, I'll go through this in more detail in a moment, but lots of cultures have a taboo on human beings being evil and challenging God and so on. So there, the Bible myth has the same thing. The people were challenging God. They forgot God's word and God um, made the flood, uh, gave them a flood. So there's, that has that element of hubris. There's repetition in it. 
The same thing happened three times. Three little animals went down with slight changes each time. It's a very common aspect of folk tales. It makes it memorable. You remember that because it's repeatable. I told you that story once, and I bet you could probably tell it yourselves. You might change a few of the details depending on your own little style. You know, every folklorist has their own style. That's why folklore is a living thing. Um, but there's aspects that are repeatable. And that's why those stories last for ten, tens of thousands of years. Because there's something, there was a knock at the door. Knock, knock, knock. You know, it has these little elements that make you remember it, even if you just heard it the one time. Jokes are very similar in that way. And there's something that makes it repeatable. Um, as I said, um, the memorability tends to lead to repeatability. There's aspects of repetition in the story that make you able to remember it and repeat it. But there's also things that make you want to repeat it. Um, it's got a nice, the, this one's got a nice twist at the end. It could be true. It's got an element of verisimilitude. It could be true. It has supernatural elements, which make it interesting. Um, so there are aspects of it um, that are memorable and repeatable. And each is meaning for us. Each is meaning for us. So for me, I tell the story of Nana Buju in a way that you wouldn't because <laughs> it doesn't have meaning for you. You might tell a different myth to your own children when, when or if you have them. Um, it, has, it connects to something. Um, it tell, it maybe it gives a lesson. Um, the meaning of the vanishing hitchhikers I just showed you. It has luminality betwixt and between. We feel something about that because we share that meaning system. We, our culture, also puts a lot of emphasis on liminality, the betwixt and the between. We put, we're like, oh, the young people, they're the answer to the future, right? Everything, you've got everything in them that you're full of possibility and screw the adult generation, they messed everything up. Let's start over. You know, every culture has that and our culture especially has a kind of youth aspect to it. We tend to really big up usefulness in lots of different ways, politically, um, uh, commercially, you know, we sell people products that are, you know, tell that ostensibly allow you to hold on to your youth. And so it has all these aspects within it that connect to a meaning system in our culture. By contrast, you can see if you go back to some of the very, very first folk tales, the first myths and legends that were ever chiseled onto a rock, they're hard sometimes to connect to. And some, some are still alive. The Epic of Gilgamesh, for example, one of the very first stories ever put down to stone. <laughs> um, we still tell aspects of that. It went all the way through our folklore to today. Um, but some things are just lost. There are jokes written on walls in Pompeii that we can't understand anymore because we don't have access to the cultural context that made those jokes meaningful and funny for those people. So each has meaning for us. And when you have meaning, you're able to connect to some sort of cultural aspect. Uh, if a story connects to something that our culture holds dear, we're more likely to repeat it. Okay. Um, so both of these stories are aspects of folklore. Um, folklore, to give you a definition, refers to all of the expressive forms, processes, and behaviors. So all these things that we customarily learn, teach, utilize or display during face-to-face -face interactions. And we tend to judge them as traditional because they're based on known precedents or models. So we've passed them down from generation to generation. And because they serve as evidence of continuities and consistencies through time and space and human knowledge, thought, belief, and feeling. We tend to value folklore because it gives us a connection to something. 
usually a connection to our culture, our past. Um, each culture tells its own folklore, its own tale. Um, and you might think like, oh, well, I don't know. In Canada, for instance, because it's such a, a mishmash of all kinds of different cultures, people are uncertain about which culture is theirs. But every, even when you, you know, everybody creates new cultures, there's no such thing as like being cultureless. Even if you lose your traditions, you tend to make new ones. That's what we do as human beings. Um, and so, uh, but we think of folklore as something that it, all of these expressive forms, processes, and behaviors that we teach and that are transmitted from the past. So folklore, I just said, comes from or is the traditional province of anthropology, but there's a lot of overlap. And sociologists and anthropologists often argue quite a lot about what is the right domain for sociology, what's the right domain for anthropology. I myself double-majored when I was in university anthropology and sociology, and I think it's really useful for sociology to understand culture and folklore and so on, because it's not like urban cultures don't tell myths. We do. It's not, we don't transmit urban legends. It's not that we don't have a connection to the past. We absolutely do. So early sociologists had tended to ignore folklore out of this belief that folklore was something quaint and something part of other cultures, not us, um, and that it had died away. Um, they tended to associate folklore with orally transmitted stories, so uh, um, stories and aspects of culture, particularly in places where they didn't have written culture. And so there was this idea that written cultures, cultures that write down, that have written language, they don't have folklore, which is not true at all. Um, it was this idea like, well, modern society has left folklore and tradition behind. Um, but this began to change, this idea um, began to um, shift within sociology in the 1980s, particularly with studies of Satanism and what we now call the Satanic Panic, which required us to go back to folklore and understand, well, geez, why would people in modern societies believe that there are Satanic cults literally able to make their members levitate <laughs> How could this happen in a modern society? And in order to understand that, we needed to understand folklore. And, and so sociologists began to really look into folklore, myth, and legend. And I'll come back to that example in a moment. So um, now, I'm going to give you some... So within folklore, there are three different types of tales that you can look at. But there's... it's. As with defining anything, there's a lot of controversy about what exactly belongs within each category. Some things are a little bit difficult to place. They have aspects of all kinds of different things. But in general, to simplify it, we can say that there are three types of folklore within uh, the kind of storytelling domain. Myths. Myths inhabit the supernatural and often sacred world. They've got supernatural elements, talking animals. Um, trickster figures, angels, God, all of that sort of thing. Legends inhabit the realm of the could be true. Sometimes they do have supernatural elements, but they're just believable. So the story of Hercules, for example, has within Greek um, mythology, has a lot of elements of the supernatural, but it's, it, it inhabits the realm of the could be true. So it's kind of somewhere in between a myth and a legend. Uh, whereas fairy tales tend to be short, imaginative tales, especially associated with the early collections produced by the Grimm brothers, um, who were a pair of 
folklorist who went around collecting stories from older women um, in the 19th century and compiled, compiled them into a series that we now recognize as the Grimm fairy tales. And that's where we get a lot of the ones that we see in Disney and so on. These were collected folk tales in the 19th century. So myths, supernatural and sacred world, legends inhabit the world that they could be true. And fairy tales are usually short, imaginative tales, usually the ones associated with the Grimm brothers. Um, so they've got fairies and sprites and so on. Of the stories that I just told you, Nanabuju and the Great Flood and the Vanishing Hitchhiker. Um, so Nanabuju and the Great Flood, which one is that? What does it fit into? Visit patreon.com slash Ashley A. Frawley for part two.